water is as beautiful as it is here. Oh my heavens. It's like a fall day, but it's not fall yet. No, it's August and it's in the 70s. And we have the air conditioner off and the house wide open. It is so fun. Wow. I mean, we got some rain today, you know, so we don't have to water the garden for a day or two. Yeah, you know? it's always <laughs> nice relief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. And here we are. We're sitting in the promised land. And, and oh, we have had quite a change over the last few days. But first, before we get into the change, oh, okay, I want to welcome you to. Ah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to, to I took a right turn. <laughs> That's right, I took a right turn. To the life of these two crazy people. Uh -huh. I took a right turn. In case that's what you were trying to find, you found it. Yeah, you found you're at the right place. Yeah. You're at the right place with the right turn. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but okay, back to the big change. The big changes that we got. Uh -huh. our, our whole landscape has changed because we had some guys come out on Saturday and cut down 12 trees. Big trees. Great big trees. You look out there now in that north lot and it's like, wow. What were we thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened was the, the ash boar beetle yeah. that, you know, some came over from Asia, gave us a little present, has come over and killed about 10, 12 million trees here in we Iowa. We contributed to that. We contributed, yeah. Michigan's lost 10 or 12 million. All these states around here have lost millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of trees. But we lost 12, yeah. you know, so we had to have them all cut down. And boy, we just did it all at once. <laughs> and now we've got to clean it all up. It'll probably only take us two, maybe three or four years. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> they were kind enough to stack, to cut the logs into the right size for our, our wood burner because we heat with wood in the winter. But when that first tree came down, because I wasn't even thinking about all of the debris, basically the little branches and all the little branches and little branches and little or little branches. And I, I, I just stood there and went, holy smokes. Oh, yes. Yeah, we're going to have lots of... Oh, we'll lots, lots of, of bending down, lots of bending down. Yeah, lots a lot of, of work, a lot of work. But praise God, we could get it done. Praise God, we could afford to get it done. Yeah. You know, it wasn't... Uh, and that we're healthy enough and strong enough to do what we need to do. And we found a tree angel. Yeah, that's what I call my, my tree angel. The tree angel just really did us a salad. But anyhow, we're here and we're ready to just go ahead. We're going to share some uh, music with you, a homegrown song. We're going to share some talk about the Bible and a chapter out of America's Trojan War. And I uh, guess we'll go into the Bible sequence right now. Okay, sounds good to me. What we're going to look at is in John chapter 6. Now this is the passage that's known as the Bread of Life passage. Now, it's uh, right after he had fed everybody, you know, the thousands and thousands of people, and they were following him around, you know, because he was working miracles and doing all this stuff. But when he gets back, you know, over to uh, Capernaum, where he was living, and they, they came to see him, and they wanted some more miracle. And uh, they, they asked him, said, well, you know, show us a miracle. And they said, well, you know, Moses gave people, you know, bread out in the desert. Now, I can never figure out why they didn't connect that up with, he had just fed the, the thousands of people with just a couple of loaves and fishes. Maybe they didn't know that it was miraculous. The people who ate it maybe didn't know that, well, he only had five, six, seven fishes and so many loaves and he just 
kept handing it out. That's highly possible, if, especially if you've ever watched The Chosen. Yeah. If you watch The Chosen, they, you see all those bazillion people there that would not have known that was going on because it. it was just up in the front that was taking place. The apostles would have known it and see, well, he just had this and he just keeps handing it out and right, handing it right. out. But you're right, the people out there uh-uh. would have no idea. But anyhow, they came and they were talking to him about that, you know, that uh, Moses gave him manna in the desert, you know, and then he starts in uh, in John 35 or so, 34, he says, Jesus says, uh, the real significance of that scripture is not that Moses gave you bread from heaven, but that my father is right now offering you bread from heaven, the real bread, the bread of God came down out of heaven and is giving life to the world. That's verse 32. Well, there you go. Well, now, uh, you know, we have to remember that back in those days, bread was, I mean, a real staple of of what people ate, you know. Uh, Nowadays, people eat bread, and certain ethnic groups eat more bread than others, you know. People got to have bread with their meal, you know. But back then, it was really a staple of, of the meal. And they they jumped at that when he said that God has sent this bread. He said, Master, give us this bread now and forever. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The person who aligns with me hungers no more and thirsts no more ever. I have told you this explicitly because even though you have seen me in action, you don't really believe me. You know, and that's, they, they had just done this huge miracle. But before he fed all those people, remember he was there preaching and doing miracles. I mean, he was healing the blind and healing the, the lame and the deaf and all this and seeing all these miracles. And they many of them didn't believe in him, even though they saw it. Even the, the apostles, you know, constantly and constantly there's places in, in the Gospels where it says, you know, they didn't understand what was, the apostles didn't know what was going on. They didn't understand what he meant. They didn't believe in him you know his own brothers and sisters didn't believe in him his mother and them came to see him they didn't believe you know he says every person the father gives me eventually comes running to me and once that person is with me i hold on and don't let go i came down from heaven not to follow my own agenda but to accomplish the will of the one who sent me you know, it's so important that Jesus is always pointing to God the Father. He's always pointing to God the Father, you know. And he's showing us that in this life, it's it's all about God. I mean, it's all coming from God. It should all come to us and then resonate back to God. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know one of the fa- my favorite prayers to ask is that I can see with his eyes and hear with his ears and speak with his words, you know, and love with his heart, you know. And if he can be formed in us, you know, then we can be him to others in this world. Yes, know? that's what we're supposed to be. Yeah. You know, Jesus is supposed to shine through us. And, you know, he tells them this about the bread of life and those who come to me and I'll hold on to them. Then he goes on and he says, this in a nutshell. Now, there's several places. I love it in in the the message how they say this in a nutshell is this. Because that is such a, a visual of, you know, here it is, compacted. Here's the whole thing. He says, this in a nutshell is that will. In other words, the will of the Father that everything handed over to me by the Father be completed, not a single detail missed. And at the wrap-up of time, I have 
have everything and everyone put together, upright, and whole. Now, look at in that verse. It talks about at the, the wrap-up of time. You know, we're here in this bubble of time, and it seems like, you know, to most people, history began the day they were born, and they figure it's going to end the day they die, you know, and that, you know, we're here, and everything is going on around us, and time is flowing, and it goes from the past to the future, you know, and we see time as a lineal thing. To God, I mean, it's always today, Mm -hmm. you know, God is eternal, God is, is outside of time. And that's a very big, a very big thing because the problem that most of us have in our thinking even is that we're stuck in this bubble and we see things with cause and effect and it's always cause and effect within a closed system. This causes that and that's what happens, you know. But we have to realize God is outside of this system and can reach into it at any time he wants in any way. Uh You know, and Christ is the perfect example of that. Here is God incarnate comes into the world and is doing these miracles, is doing all these things, and is telling us that he is going to bring everything together, that everything will be completed. In other words, when time began... And then time is going to end. It's going to wrap up. Everything in between will be completed in Christ. Amen. You know, and we have to see that there is, as there's a beginning, even scientists talk about, you know, the Big Bang and all this kind of stuff. They, even scientists know they can look at their own tests and say, well, time started here. You know, we don't know what made it start. We don't know how it started. We don't know what was before it started. But time started here and they also from their own theory say well it's going to have to end somewhere it ends you know somewhere else they believe in a beginning and an end and here god who is calls himself says i am the alpha and the omega i'm the beginning and the end that he's going to wrap it all up in him you know so that if we're not in jesus where are we that's that's a big a big question i would think you know people would want to know the answer to what what's it all about i mean that's the basic question that everybody has isn't it i mean what's it all about why am i here what it what's the reason for any of this? i think that's why people commit suicide they don't have any reason they don't understand they don't see any point to anything i agree except i don't think that it's everybody i think there's people who don't care oh i think with people just existing on today and what they do and that's it they don't think about why am i here what am i doing here they're just doing what they do they don't even care no and they never even think about it i don't think so i think there's a lot of people that way Look at our world. How could you explain it any other way? Yeah, that's true. I mean, they they just, I don't know. You know, it's so foreign to me to not ask those kind of questions. Well, but that's you. That's, that's what I'm saying is not everybody's not like everybody that. Not everybody like that. Um, it says, this is what the Father wants, that anyone who sees the Son and trusts who he is and what he does and then aligns with him will enter real life, eternal life. You know, but the important part is there, you know, aligns with him. There's a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, Jesus, he's a good guy. Yeah, I believe Jesus was born. He's back there somewhere, you know, and all this. Or, you know, like uh, some people might even, we know people, as a matter of fact, like, oh, they believe in Jesus. Sure, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Buddha and Muhammad and everybody else, too, you know. They believe in everybody, you know. But it says aligns with him. Yes. You know, we got to line up with him. If we're going to receive this promise he's talking about him of eternal life. Real life. 
that's real life. And that, I think, is another part here that sometimes we can read over these things and miss that, that, oh, yeah, you're going to give us life, you know, but real life, and then goes further and says eternal life. Yeah. So this is not real life. This is just a stage, you know, like this is the antechamber. You know, this is the vestibule to real life. Real life is eternal life, mm -hmm. you know. And until we get there... The next sentence, though, is pretty uh, heavy. My part is to put them on their feet, alive and whole, at the completion of time. Wow. You know, so we can see there, you know, what's so important is it makes, it gives a purpose to our life. The purpose of our life is to align with Jesus so that we are one with him, so that we are with him when time wraps up, when it's all over at the completion. Amen. You know, and how do we line up with him? We do the same things he did. Amen. We pray for people and minister to people. Amen. So, praise God. You know, we hope that, that blessed you in some way. And uh, here we go. We'll move on to the next thing, which is... <laughs> Our homegrown song. We're going to share a song with you. It's called Who Writes the Review? This fact, has become my favorite song, really. And, and as a matter of fact, it's our newest song. It's, yeah. This is the newest song God has given us, and, and it's called Who Writes the Review? We hope you enjoy it. And God bless you. God bless. stars of this flavor is Jesus who takes our sins away Sing it on a cruise. 
hope you enjoyed that song. I gotta tell you, it makes me want to sway. I don't know how else to say it. It just has that rhythm about and just just swaying with the music. Yeah, I just I love it. It's a great song. Oh, praise God! God did a good job. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, and we're working on our music all the time. We're trying to to work. We seek God all the time to help us write songs and that we can share with y'all. And now we're going to read chapter 9 in America's Trojan War, which is called The Giant Awakens. And now this, as we've told you before, is the first book in a five-book series that is about a dystopian future in America. It actually takes place between 2016 and 2024 about a, a civil war that is sparked by a, a huge terrorist attack. And the first book is the terrorist attack, and the next four books is about the civil war that it sparks. And they're all available from Amazon. Just go to Amazon.com and the search bar. Just put in America's Trojan War, Dr. Robert Owens. Bang, it's going to read you, bring you right there. Then you can click on my name where you see it there, and it'll take you to my author's page. But here we go. We're going to share that chapter with you and hope you enjoy it. Chapter 9, The Giant Awakened. To say pandemonium reigned at the North Atlantic Military Division Headquarters, North American Aerospace Defense Command, and every other command in the American military would be to underestimate the confusion. For a nation with a huge military establishment, a general staff, and its own intelligence agency, and a nation with tens of thousands of FBI agents all over the country, for a nation with an international spy agency that battled the vaunted KGB for decades, it was amazing how badly ISIS caught us unaware. Reports poured in. Washington was under siege. The White House was a smoking ruin, as were numerous other emblematic structures that symbolized America. In Baltimore, Richmond, and Harrisburg, massive fires were engulfing large regional hospitals. General David Calloway, commander of the North Atlantic Military Division, was wide awake by the time he arrived four hours earlier than usual at his office at Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn. He had been receiving updates ever since he was contacted at 6 a.m. by the overnight duty officer. Simmons, have you been able to raise General Davis at the Pentagon? No, sir. I can't contact General Davis or anyone at the Pentagon. What about the White House? No, sir. General Callaway was a 30-year veteran who had seen service in both Gulf Wars, leading frontline troops in battle. He had also served as one of the chief architects of the surge, which would have pacified Afghanistan if its announcement hadn't been followed in the same speech by the news that America was going to exit by a date certain. He knew about war firsthand, and he had surrounded himself with battle-hardened commanders. Simmons, give me Colonel Stamper, Callaway ordered. Sir, Colonel Stamper has just cleared the gate, and he's on his way up, responded Simmons. Good. Send out the order for everyone to report to duty. Schedule a staff meeting for 9 a.m. Alert the governor of every state in the di division that we're nationalizing the guard to full mobilization immediately. Contact 
the Air Force and tell them I want AWACS in the air over Washington now and get me the latest satellite photos immediately. Yes, sir, Captain Simmons answered sharply as he turned and went to his office to carry out the general's orders. General Calloway went to the communications room to personally direct and monitor all attempts to raise the civilian government and the Joint Chiefs. Have you been able to raise anyone in Washington, Sergeant? asked the general as, the, as his concern grew. I've been able to contact several departments, but not the White House or the Pentagon. Have any of the departments you contacted had a secretary on site? No, sir, answered the sergeant, while still monitoring the incoming communications. Calloway knew that if the president had been taken out, civilian leadership would have to follow the line of succession. He also knew the president had called all his major leaders and supporters to Washington to celebrate what he called his victory over ISIL. There had been such a long lull in terrorist activities and such a profound cessation of military operations on the part of the caliphate over the last several months that President Obonio had declared they were not only contained, they were degraded and about to begin retreating. In his prime time address to the nation less than a week ago, he had gone so far as to paraphrase Winston Churchill when he ended his speech saying, this may not be the beginning of the end, but it is at last the end of the beginning. Everyone was there for the celebrations, the vice president, all the cabinet secretaries, and the joint chiefs. Everyone had been called to, to bask in the reflection of the man they were saying was the greatest commander-in-chief since Lincoln, Wilson, or FDR, as he took an extended victory lap through speeches and parade, Calloway also knew that all these leaders in Washington at once, the nation could have been successfully decapitated. Walking up behind him, Colonel Stamper interrupted his musings and said, General, how bad is it? Turning to face his old friend, he marveled at how, he, how young Stamper looked, and he thought of all the tough situations they had faced together through the years. In Iraq and Afghanistan, they had spent countless hours strategizing and planning everything from covert ops to massive campaigns. And today, General Calloway knew they faced the gravest threat to the, their nation since either of them had put on the uniform back in the 80s. Rick, it's as bad as it can get. The White House and the Pentagon have both gone dark. I can't raise either of them. We can't raise either civilian or military command anywhere near Washington, even on private lines. Do we have any birds in the air? What do the satellites show? Asked Colonel Stamper. We should have visuals any minute. But from all the chatter and from the reports coming in, it looks like there are terrorist attacks taking place in at least three states besides D.C. There are reports from state police of massive troop movements, and it seems that the terrorists have taken over several towns, all of them the home of a National Guard armored brigade, answered the general, as he waited for the images that would tell him so much more of what they needed to know. Just then, the sergeant in charge of communications room said, General, Captain Simmons reports that you are needed in the staff meeting room. Without a word, General Calloway turned. It was Colonel Stamper right beside him, made his way to the staff meeting room, where he was greeted by his gathering command staff. Let's see what has happened. On the long mahogany table, satellite pictures were spread out, showing a massive cloud of smoke following the wind east from Washington, D.C., 
infrared photos showed flames where the White House, Congress, the Pentagon, and several other legendary locations had once stood. Other photos showed huge fires in Richmond, Baltimore, and Harrisburg. Still more showed heavy black smoke streaming away from the four towns surrounding D.C. that housed four of the best-equipped armored brigades in America's National Guard. What about the AWACS? Where's the intel from the AWACS? General Calloway asked as he looked intently at the high-def pictures on the table. The Air Force says they're still 20 minutes out, responded Simmons. Is there any response from the governors? No, sir. Contact the commanding generals of every National Guard in the division and tell them I'm nationalizing them immediately and that they're to mobilize and prepare to march on Washington as soon as they have boots on the ground. And tell them I want all of them to report to me here for central planning and execution. Yes, sir, Simmons said as he left the room to convey the general's orders. It looks like we're not only facing at least four armored brigades, they're our own brigades and the four closest to Washington. Jacobs, I want to find you to find out exactly what the guard has available within striking distance. Yes, sir, I'm on it, Major Ralph Jenkins, the division's liaison to the guard, responded while immediately leaving the room to gather the needed information. I want maps in here now. Yes, sir. We have them right here, Lieutenant Jim Thompson answered as he walked into the room and began spreading maps out on the big table. In moments, the group of officers was huddled over the maps and satellite photos. Holding one infrared photo, Codro Stampers compared it to the big map of D.C. and said, General, it looks like those brigades are dug in at four major hospitals. Let me see that, the general said, holding out his hand. Looking from the picture to the map, he continued, You're right, Rick. The heat signatures of all those Army vehicles are unmistakable. Just then, Captain Simmons came in, followed by Major Jenkins. Sir, the governors of Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania are all saying that only the president can nationalize the Guard and that they are mobilizing to respond to attacks in their own states, Major Jenkins said. Captain Simmons added, the AWACS are in the air and they're starting to report. Pipe it in, the general said as he thought about the information Jenkins had reported. Jenkins, what about other states? All the other states are responding. They're mobilizing and their commanding generals are on their way, Jenkins answered. This is AWAC Delta One, came a voice from the overhead speakers. Delta One, what kind of chatter are you picking up from the enemy formations in Washington? asked the general as he began looking at a new batch of satellite photos a sergeant had just brought in and set on the table. We aren't hearing anything. There's no electronic communication going on between the four locations, and we haven't picked up anything inside the four locations. Nothing? Yes, sir. They're completely dark as far as electronic communication, at least in any frequency we can monitor, responded the voice from the AWAC. That doesn't make any sense, interjected Colonel Stamper. They've got to be communicating somehow. Maybe they're using runners or some new frequency we don't know about, Lieutenant Thompson offered. We can monitor all possible radio frequencies, and there's nothing, came the voice from the AWAC. What about walkie-talkies or cell phones? asked the general. Some walkie-talkies may be so low-tech we aren't equipped to pick them up, and cell phones are restricted by policy, replied the voice of the speakers. Policy be damned. You listen to any cell traffic coming from those four sites or anything else going on in there, snapped General Calloway. Yes, sir. Pointing to one of the newest satellite photos, Stamper said, from the heat signatures, it looks like there's small arms fire punctuated by our artillery 
going on at the perimeters of all four sites. From the look of it, the artillery is all coming from the enemy, Lieutenant Thompson added. You're right, Stamper responded. See the flash of fire there and the explosion of impact here? He continued pointing at flashes on two separate photos. It looks like the enemy positions are taking fire from the outside. At least someone is moving on these terrorists, keeping them pinned down so we can get some troops on scene, the general said as he looked at the two photos. Sir, we aren't picking up any cell use between or within the four locations, except for civilians who are obviously sheltering in place and haven't been rounded up by the terrorists, said the disembodied voice from the ceiling. What are they saying, asked the general. Most are describing masses of uniformed men, heavily armed. We're speaking Arabic. They're describing mass casualties, that the intruders are killing all the male staff except for doctors, and they're rounding up all the female staff and herding them off somewhere. The patients are being left where they are with their, with their bed box. There are many reporting that the assailants are executing any patients that are ambulatory. Those lousy sons of bitches, Lieutenant Thompson said under his breath. Simmons, have communications raised to Washington PD and pipe them in as soon as you reach their command, ordered the general. Yes, sir, Captain Simmons said as he used his cell phone to relay the orders to the division communications room. In the midst of all this hectic but well-ordered chaos of command, stage three of the attack came crashing in like another tunnel brick. Captain Simmons looked up from his phone conversation with the communications room and said, Sir, reports are pouring in from the whole DC area, all the way to Baltimore, Richmond, and Harrisburg, that snipers are taking out motorists, especially tanker trucks, up and down the expressways. Bridges on the interstates are being blown. Sniper and mortar fire has also uh, hit the Washington PD headquarters tied down. RPGs fired from rooftops right into their main counter conference office has taken out the chief and her whole staff. Also, hospitals throughout the region have come under attack. A stunned silence gripped the room, broken by Lieutenant Colonel Sue Hack, a division intelligence officer, saying, This is unbelievable. This may be beyond belief and impossible, may take a little longer, but we're going to hit these fools so hard, they're going to wake up in heaven and tell their 72 versions they wished they had stayed in bed, the general said. Turning to Colonel Stamper, the general said, Rick, I want you to go down there and personally take command of every troop we can bring to bear. I want you to stop these jihadi potlickers until there's nothing left but an oil slick. Yes, sir. I'm on my was all Stamper got out as four mortar rounds landed on the headquarters building, quickly followed by four more, and then four more, while at the same time small arms fire broke out from dozens of buildings around the perimeter of Fort Hamilton. War had come to Brooklyn as the Caliphate Stage 3 brought most of America's immediate coordinated military response to a blazing halt. Well, I don't know how you all do it. How can you just listen to that one chapter and not want to know more? I mean, when I read these books, which I've read several times in the editing process, I, I just can't put them down. So anyhow, hope you enjoyed that. Robert, we thank you for reading it. It's a great read. And um, as he said, Amazon got the books. And we will see you or you'll hear us. <laughs> I don't know. You're not going to see us. We're not going to see you. But you can hear us again in the next episode, which will be with you very soon. 